to the UNT BSM audio resources. If you want more information on the BSM, you can go to untbsm.com. Thanks for listening. Leviticus is the third book of the Bible, the third book also of the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible. Um, And so it's important to remember that this book, like the two before it and the two after it, were all, um, for the most part, written by Moses and center on uh, this, this community of the people of Israel that has just been brought out of slavery into Egypt. So if you remember last week, we saw the Exodus was the miraculous, incredible rescue of the people out of slavery and into a new kind of relationship with God through the covenant that he gave to them in the Ten Commandments. And so it's, it's important to think about, you know, for us, we read the Bible and we think of Genesis as the beginning, okay? And that's true, and that's what it is, but really... Um, I think what would stand out more for Israel as their beginning was not Genesis, but the Exodus, okay? So when you look at, um, throughout the rest of the Old Testament, where uh, Israel kind of traces their birth back to is really the Exodus, okay? So the Exodus can almost be thought of as where Israel's story really begins, and then Genesis is kind of the prologue to that in some ways is a more helpful way to think about that. So even the things in Genesis is the pertinent information that helps Israel understand who they are in light of the Exodus. Does that make sense? So what, what, why that matters is because as we're continuing now, we are, we are dealing with a post-Exodus community of people. And Leviticus stands in this really kind of funny place in that. Well, I had a mentor one time called Leviticus the stopper book. Because you start reading the Bible and everybody, what do they, you know, they say, okay, I'm going to read the Bible, so I'm going to start on page one and I'm going to read. And Genesis is actually really interesting. You know, and you go through it, there's a lot of story in Genesis. And then Exodus gets really cool. And then towards the end of Exodus, he starts going into this stuff where he starts talking about the tabernacle and building the tabernacle. And you're like, well, this is kind of weird, but you know, there's only a few chapters left in Exodus, and I can get, get through it. And then you're like, wow, this is really weird, because he's actually repeating himself when he's talking about the tabernacle. Everything he says about the tabernacle once, he actually says twice. I don't know, but I'm almost done. I finished Exodus, and then I'm going to keep on going, because I want to find out what happens to Israel. And then you start reading Leviticus, and you're like, what is this? And that's usually about when people stop reading their Bible, because it's like, I don't, I don't get it. And the story gets interrupted, and it, you know... Um, and that's why, one, it's important anytime you're reading any book of the Bible to understand its genre and its place in the overall story. So once we get back into numbers, we're going to pick up with this same story of Israel. Okay, Leviticus is sort of like an insertion into this story of Israel that we've been, but then Leviticus is legal the legal genre of literature. So it is, it is rules, it is laws, and this isn't the only place where this happens, although this is the biggest place where we get this legal literature, and it's actually really important to understand, um, and you, you know, it's not as important to understand all of the ins and outs, although I think that's really profitable, but it's more to understand why are these rules here, what are they really pointing to, and as we're going to see by the end of the day today, that in, without an understanding of Leviticus, the New Testament really doesn't make as much sense as it should. Okay, and but what if you can really understand what's going on in Leviticus, then you'll understand um, a lot of things, particularly in the book of Hebrews, which we're going to look at later today. So, but Leviticus only makes sense in light of what we saw at the end of the book of Exodus, which was the tabernacle, which we didn't talk about a whole lot last time. But if you remember, the book of Exodus had what as one of its themes the presence of God. That's really a theme that runs through the whole Bible. Okay. But um, at the end of the book of Exodus, God, Moses has gone up to be with God on top of Mount Sinai. God has given the people of Israel this covenant and these laws. All right, And remember, those laws were not um, before their redemption. It was after their redemption. Do you remember that? So God saved them and then gave them laws. It would be very different if God gave them laws and then saved them based on their obedience to those laws. That would be a very different story. But instead, God saved them first. And then said, because I saved you, because of our relationship, because I love you, here are the laws that I want you to love me through. Does that make sense? But the, at the end of Exodus, 
God gives Moses a vision. He says, I give you very clear instructions for how to build a tabernacle or a tent for me to be present in. And so he gives him, he tells uh, Moses to take up a collection from all of the people in Israel of different resources, jewelry, thread, things like that, and they build a tent. And the tent looks like this. So it's got this uh, long curtain that is probably, you know, as high as a person that forms this outer structure. So there's no roof on this. this is, think of this as like a, a tent made, or a, a fence made out of animal skins. Okay, so it's got a curtain that forms a courtyard. So everything inside of this is a courtyard. And then inside of the courtyard, there is a tent that they make that's made, again, out of skins. And it actually is like a tent, so it's got a roof on it. So it's got a covering on top. And the tent is divided into two rooms, okay? So there is a door on this end of the tent, and then there is a curtain that divides the rooms. And so it's like a curtain, you know, you could open it up and you could walk on into the inside. And so this is the way that the tabernacle is um, shaped. And then God gives Moses a vision for different uh, furnishings or different instruments that go inside of this tabernacle. So here is the courtyard. In the courtyard, right at the front of this door, there is an altar. Okay, An altar is like a big grill that you cook animal sacrifices on. Okay, So there's animal sacrifices. And then here, there is a big bronze bowl pretty much, that is filled with water. And that is where you would wash up after sacrificing animals. Okay, It's also where you would wash the animals and do things like that. So there's this big thing of water, and there's an altar. Now, in this room, this room is called the holy place. And in this room, there is a table right there where they would put uh, bread offerings. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. Um, and then right here, there would be another smaller altar that they would offer incense on. So incense is stuff that smells good and makes a lot of smoke and things like that, so that would be that. And then here, there is a lampstand, and it has um, candles on it, and it would glow with light. You know what the word for lampstand in Hebrew is? Menorah. Anybody heard that before? Got any Jewish friends that celebrate Hanukkah? So that is where the lampstand goes. And then in this room, this is called the most holy place, or the holy of holies. Okay. And in Hebrew, they they would when they wanted to uh, emphasize something, they would say it twice. Okay. So if uh, a song was really good, it would be called the Song of Songs which is a book in the Bible, or if a king was really good, he would be called the king of kings. This, this place is holy. This place is especially holy, so it's the holy of holies. But in English, we can translate that the most holy place. Okay? And in the most holy place, there would be the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was a box. Ark is like the same thing that Noah built, so it's a box that stuff goes in. And inside that box, they would put the tablets of the Ten Commandments, the tablets of the covenant relationship that they have. They'd put some other stuff in there, too. And then on top of that box was a thing called the mercy seat, which was a lid. Okay, it was a lid that went on the box, but the lid was called a, a seat or a throne. Okay, and so what that was symbolizing was that God um, sat on that mercy seat, that that was where the presence of God was um, concentrated, was on top of that Ark of the Covenant. There would also be um, in here, so on top of the Ark of the Covenant, there were two cherubim, little angel statues, and then inside of here there were also two cherubim um, that kind of looked like angels with their wings stretched out like this. Okay? And so whenever, like in the book of Isaiah chapter 6, there's a vision of God sitting on his throne, and around him are angels flying. And so God is pictured as, as seated in the midst of these angels, and that's the same kind of thing that we get in this place. So what's going on with all of this? Okay, This is a basic 
temple structure. This is the, the Jews did not invent this, okay? If you looked at other ancient Near Eastern cultures and the way that their temples looked, they had temple structures that were very similar to this. Even when it had a courtyard, it would have a, a inner sanctum and then like an inner inner sanctum, okay? And so in other cultures, in other temples, they would have, the, and there would be degrees of holiness as you are moving into the, the temple structure, okay? So everything outside of this is not sacred, okay? When I say holy, it doesn't mean necessarily good or bad, but it means everything outside of this is not sacred. It's not a religious space. And then you step inside of this courtyard, and things get more holy. And then you step inside of the tabernacle, and things get more holy. And then you get into this one holy place. Now, in other ancient Near Eastern cultures that have a similar... Uh, structure like this, inside this most holy place, inside this inner sanctum, that's where they would put the statue of their God that they worshipped. Okay? And so people will look and they'd say, look, the Jews had the same kind of temple that everybody else had. So clearly the Jews are just one more man-made religion that developed just like everybody else's did. Okay? And that can kind of make sense if you're looking at it, but then if you stop and you think, but wait a minute. All of the other religious groups, all the other nations have um, something in common that the Jews are missing, which is when you go into their most holy place, is there a statue of their God? No. Where you would expect to see a statue of their God, you see air. You see nothing. And remember last time when you saw the Ten Commandments, God said, don't make a graven image of me. Okay? I don't work like those other gods. I am the real God. I am the living God. And I'm not going to be present in a statue. I'm going to be present in a holy place. I'm going to be present for real. You don't need a statue because I'm really there. I'm a real God. So it's making a really big point that this is where God would be. And we said that that was a big deal because at, at the point when God gave Moses the instructions for the tabernacle, where had God's presence been? Okay? Um, the the story of God's presence that runs through the whole Bible actually connects to this. If you remember all the way back when we talked about the book of Genesis, when God made heaven and earth, okay? God made the heavens and the earth, and we saw that when he was doing that, that there was a temple idea when he was creating the creation, okay? The temple, a place where God would dwell. And so God made the whole universe, heaven and earth, like a temple. And in that temple, there was an image of God. Just like the Babylonians had a temple with their image of their God, Marduk, inside the temple. God made the heavens and the earth, and he put an image of himself in that temple. Who is the image of God? Us. And so God made the whole universe to be his temple where he was present, and we were there. And another thing that temples had was priests. And so we said that when God made the heavens and the earth, he made mankind to be the priests, okay, to guard the temple and to tend to the religious services that were in the temple, which was the whole creation. And God was present in the whole creation. And it's really interesting if you look at the way that the things that God tells Moses to build and put into the temple, when he tells him to build a menorah, he says, make the menorah look like a tree. Put, like literally put flowers on it, put leaves and branches on it. Make them, so the menorah was carved to look like a tree. You have water when they were making the patterns for that went on the curtains that made the tent he said put pomegranates okay it's got all of this floral imagery so inside the the temple you would be looking around and there would be all of these things that remind you of a garden that's saying that the that's hearkening back to the garden of eden the garden of eden was the original temple and god's presence was there so what does that mean that god was present through the whole universe God was especially present with mankind, and mankind had a perfect relationship with God, and that was how it was supposed to be, until mankind broke the rules. Mankind broke God's covenant and God's commandment. Mankind decided to worship God a different way, or to not worship God at all, really. And so their presence was separated. And what's really interesting is what it says is that God cast the man and the woman out of the garden and blocked their way in, and when it says he casts them out, it says they cast them out to the east of Eden. And then he put a guard there, a cherubim, to guard the entrance back into the garden on the east. And the reason that I drew it facing this way is whenever they would set up the tabernacle, they would set it up just like this. So where is this door? It's on the east side. 
Okay? So the tabernacle was set up to kind of imply everything about this idea of the presence of God. And so mankind had been kicked out of the garden, and their relationship with the presence of God was cut off. And then the rest of Genesis was God bringing them slowly back in. And so when we saw in Exodus that God is suddenly present through this burning bush, and God is present all of a sudden with his people in Egypt, and he is present in the form of these plagues and these miracles, and then he takes them out of Egypt, and they're at Mount Sinai, and then God is present in fire and loud noises and smoke on top of Mount Sinai. And so the people are like, man, where we had been separated from God, now all of a sudden we're being brought back in and God is here. And then you remember what happens is they make the golden calf. And God gets really frustrated with them. And Moses intercedes for them. But God's first response is, tell you what, I'm, I'm going to have a hard time dwelling with this people. So I'm just going to give you guys the promised land, but I'm going to stay here. You guys go into the promised land without me. And it was kind of a test, really. And Moses said, God forbid, we would rather stay here in the desert with you than go anywhere without you, even to the promised land, even to the land of milk and honey. And so God says, okay, well then what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you instructions to make this tent so that wherever you go, I will dwell with you. And the thing about the tent is it was portable, so they would set it up and they would set it down. So wherever the people of Israel went now, all of a sudden, they had this God that was dwelling present with them. But not everybody could go into the presence of God. So this is like a half step in fixing the problem of the Garden of Eden. So anyone that was Israel could come inside this courtyard. Okay? They could offer a sacrifice on that altar. But only the priests from the tribe of Levi could go into the holy place. But even they couldn't go into the most holy place. Only the high priest, only Aaron and his sons, could go into the most holy place, and they could only go into the most holy place once a year. Yes? So how did they move it when they moved the, you know, the most holy place? You know, uh -huh. the, high, the most high priest was allowed to move that. Then how did they, how did they move that around when you know, they moved the tabernacle? Yeah, so there's actually whole instructions. So the book of Leviticus is called Leviticus because it is instructions to the Levites, okay? That's kind of, that's why it gets its name. And so that's part of it. So there is this whole ritual process for how they would tear down and set up the tabernacle. And then there is a whole sub-tribe within Leviticus. There was a whole family within, or within the Levites. There was a whole family within the Levites, and it was their job to carry the holy instruments, okay? And so it's kind of an idea that when it's not set up in the temple for its temple functions, then it's different. Right, And so um, they, there was this whole ritual of setting it up and setting it down and things like that. But even this place where God, so the Ark of the Covenant had poles that they were supposed to carry it on. They were not allowed to touch the Ark of the Covenant. You could only touch the poles and carry it. And the, God, the Ark of the Covenant was like the most concentrated place of God's presence. If you remember, when, if you read uh, Joshua, when they fight the Battle of Jericho, the first battle that they fight when they come into the promised land, God tells the priests to actually take the Ark of the Covenant out and march around Jericho with it. So God is marching around Jericho with his people. Okay? And so when the people would move from one place to another, the Ark of the Covenant would go, and actually, you know, this is more than you've asked for, but the way that they would set everything up in the march, there was, there was very detailed instructions for how the people were supposed to march in tribes. And they would march with, um, I think it was six tribes in front and six tribes behind. And in the very middle was the Ark of the Covenant, which is where the king would be if a nation was marching. So that, that's God's throne. And they would, they would kind of treat it like that. Okay? And so in another way, this is the same thing when, when kings would be on the march. They would have a special tent that, that would be set up for them. And, you know, so it's kind of that king-priest idea um, that, that goes on with that. So yeah. But again, the important thing is there were specific instructions for how it happened, okay? And even, like, if you read through Exodus, there are verse after verse of chapters on specific instructions for how this is supposed to look. God is giving them the pattern, and he is saying, don't worship me different than the pattern that I'm giving to you. This is going to come up in Leviticus later. We're not going to get there today. But, do you see the picture, okay? So, mankind has been cast out of the Garden of Eden, and God has given them away to come back into the presence of God. And at this point, it's only through a representative, but that's what the priests were. The priests were representatives. They were mediators. So not everybody could go in, 
but representatives could go in. And that was almost as good. That was God fellowshipping and accepting the presence of all of the people through these representatives, through these mediators, right? So the question then is, if there's been this theme established throughout the Pentateuch that mankind has um, sinned against God and that sin has cast them out of God's presence, okay? And then now God is making a way for them to come back in. The question is, well, how does that work? And that's really the big, if you wanted to know what the theme of the book of Leviticus is, it's trying to answer this question. How can an unholy people worship a holy God? How can an unholy people be in the presence of a holy God? And so the book of Leviticus is rules for the priests who are representatives and, and mediators. So the priests are mediating the relationship between the people on one side and God on the other side. And the, the priests are the ones that are giving instructions for how this relationship works. Okay? And Leviticus not only is going to be rules for the priests and how they do certain <coughs> things in their worship practices, but it's also going to be rules for all of the people for how they are supposed to eat and how are they supposed to dress and how are they supposed to act and do certain things. Okay? There's lots and lots of rules. And people can read the book of Leviticus and think, man, this is like really a, a downer book because it's all about rules and it's all about sin and it's all about unholiness and it's all about, okay, but it's important again to remember the order that this comes in. This book has come after their redemption, okay? They are not being asked to keep these rules so that God will save them and love them. These rules come because God has saved them and loved them already. And that's the same for us as Christians, okay? We're not saved by keeping God's law, by keeping God's commandments, by obeying the commandments of Jesus as, and these laws as they've been revealed, but we're saved by God's love for us. And then God says, because I love you, this is how I want you to live, okay? Um, but then the other thing is, and we're going to get into a bunch of sacrifices and stuff like that, and you're like, man, this is really weird and this is really bloody, but what you need to see in the sacrifices and this whole system that God is going to set up so that people can come back into his presence is God saying, I want you to be in my presence. Okay? So yes, there's a lot, and, and we're going to talk about why there's a lot that it takes to get into God's presence, but at the heart of this book is God saying, I want you to dwell with me. I want to dwell with you. Does that make sense? But then all of these rules go to show how hard it is for an unholy people to dwell with a holy God and how powerful our God is to make it happen. Okay? So, the first few chapters of the book of Leviticus is all going to outline a series of sacrifices, different kinds of sacrifices. Um, the, when you read through this, okay, it's... And, and I hope you do read through this, but I'm not going to lie. It's kind of dry reading. But if you remember and you think about it, like this is really a real God talking to real people. And if you were a priest and it was very important that you would know how to offer these sacrifices, wouldn't you want God to be very detailed about how that works? Like if that was your job, okay? So it's not your job. And so this can kind of feel like, like reading an instruction manual for um, a, a machine that you don't own. Okay, so it's going to be kind of weird like that, but you have to think about more what's going into this. And so I'm just going to give you the highlights for how these sacrifices work, because there's five sacrifices that get explained in the first, really, seven or so chapters of Leviticus. The first sacrifice, which you see in chapter one, is called the burnt offering. Okay? And what this sacrifice was was kind of your entrance in the door, so to speak. So if you are an Israelite and you wanted to fellowship with a holy God, you had, before you could do anything else with God, you had to recognize that you were unholy, that you were sinful. And if a sinful person is in the presence of a holy God, apart from any kind of mediation, what happens to the sinful person in the presence of a holy God? They're dead. Okay? You can't stand in the presence of God because God is, is too good, too glorious, okay? And so you need to recognize that. And so what you would do is you would bring an animal. So like look at Leviticus chapter 1, verse, uh, we'll just start with the first verse. It says, Yahweh called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. 
And if his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish, and he shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. Okay? So he's offering that sacrifice so that God will accept him in. If he doesn't offer that sacrifice, God will not accept him, and you'll be dropped, you'll drop dead. Okay, so this is how you get accepted. But look at what he's going to do. He's going to take that animal. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. That's an important word in the book of Leviticus. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priest, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the side of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So they're saying is you're going to bring in an animal, and you're going to lay your hands on the animal. And what that laying on of hands does is it's, it's making atonement. Okay? The animal is going to be a substitutionary sacrifice. Okay? It will, atonement means to make an appeasement, okay? or to make, make uh, restitution or satisfaction. Okay? So you are laying your hands on the animal. What that is symbolizing is you are covered in sin and unholiness. And this animal, what kind of animal was this? Is this, is this some busted up, gross, ugly, old, dying animal? What kind of animal is it? Animal with, no with no defects, without blemish. This is a perfect animal, perfect, symbolically perfect, like okay? The like the one from the Passover, exactly. And so here's this perfect animal, and you are an imperfect person, and you lay your hands on them, and it symbolizes the transfer of your blemishes onto them, your defilements, your defects onto that animal, okay? And what did we say happens to an imperfect person in the presence of a perfect God, they die. Well, you have passed on that imperfection to the animal, and then what, is, what happens to that animal? It dies. Okay? It's killed. On the, it's offered as a sacrifice. So it is sacrificially you saying, I know I deserve to die if I was in your presence. And so please accept the death of this animal on my behalf so that I can come in. And so they would put the animal on the altar, they would burn the entire thing, just the way that you would be burned up entirely if you were to stand unmediated in the presence of God. That animal is burned entirely. And what else does that accomplish? Nothing. That just gets you into the presence of God. Okay? Now there are four more sacrifices after that that, you would, that would follow after the offering of the burnt offering. Does that make sense? So the next four, this is really the the prerequisite for the other four. You have to offer a burnt offering if you want to even offer any other offering to God. Does that make sense? So the second one is called a grain offering or a memorial offering. So this would be an offering um, of first fruits and thankfulness. Okay, If you were um, uh, growing crops and you would have grain, you would come and you would make a different... Then there was all kinds of rules. You can read about the rules, but you would make a, like an unleavened cake and you would offer that as an offering. And actually, that offering, some of it was burnt, but a lot of it went to the priests, and the priests would eat it, okay? But that was, the priests are kind of the stand-in for God. And so that's an offering that's offered to God, that's given to the priests. But the reason it says memorial offering, like if you see in um, verse 2 of chapter 2, it says, Bring it to Aaron's sons, the priest, and he shall take from it a handful of the fine flour and oil, with all of its frankincense, and the priest shall burn this as its memorial portion on the altar, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. So that was a way of coming before God, and the reason it says memorial is it's almost a way of saying, God, remember me, okay? And recognizing and thanking God that he has remembered you, okay? So it's really just highlighting the relationship that you have with God and God's favor and God's consideration of you. Okay, and so that's a, just a good prayer practice. Like when you're sitting down and you're praying, it's like, man, God cares about me. You know, God remembers me. And then it's okay to kind of ask, and not like God forgets, but as that act of dependence, God continue to remember me. Okay, and I remember you, and I'm honoring you for the, first, for the things that you've given me. So it's sort of just celebrating and remembering and honoring that relationship that you have with God. Okay, um, the third is called the peace offering. The peace offering is really cool. That's, that's one that is entirely thanksgiving. Okay? It's just entirely celebrating the peace that you have with God. Um, and there's different kinds of peace offerings, but one of the cool things about the peace offering 
is that you would bring a big animal. You would come in and you would offer a big animal to eat, probably like an ox, okay? And the deal was that the whole offering had to be offered. It had to be sacrificed, okay? And they wouldn't burn that animal. They would burn the fat portions of the animal, which is the best part of the animal. But they would keep the rest of the meat, and all of the meat of that animal had to be eaten in two days, Okay, none of it could be left. Have you, do you know how much meat an ox provides? A lot. And so what you would do, and it was usually like more wealthy people that could offer, I mean, you're basically just saying, I just want to give this animal, okay? So the poor people couldn't offer peace offerings, but they were gonna, you know, this tent is set up in the middle of the nation of Israel. So a rich person would offer an ox as a sacrifice and they would say, man, we got to eat all of this in two days. So who's invited? Everybody. So this was a meal that you offered that, that celebrated the peace that you had because all of the priests would eat that, and the priests would represent that relationship that you had with God. Also, all of the fat portion would be burned up, which was symbolizing God eating that meal with you. And then you would eat the meal with all of your family and all of your friends and all of your like extended neighbors that you hardly even know. You'd basically throw a giant barbecue. And what is that celebrating? The peace that you have with God and the peace that you have with everybody else. Okay? And it's just, it's just a party to recognize good things. Now, isn't that crazy? When I look at these two, are, when you think about sacrifices, you don't necessarily think about it. Sacrifices are always like bad things, I think, in our mind. But this is like celebrations. Okay? And also, this is the way that the Lord provides for the priests. We saw that, that the Levites were a nation or a tribe of the nation of Israel that were not allowed to have any other jobs. Their job was only to take care of all of the temple stuff, all of the worship stuff. And so they couldn't grow crops. They couldn't do any of that stuff. So everybody had to provide for them through this sacrificial system. But the priests represented that peace with God. And all of that is a meal. You don't generally sit down and eat a meal with somebody that you're an enemy with. Right? You eat meals with people that you're friends with. You eat meals with people that you love. You eat meals with your family. How crazy that God set up a system where you get to sit down and have a meal with God. A holy God. Saying, I love you so much, we're going to have peace. We're going to have fellowship together. The fourth offering is called the sin offering, usually. Maybe a better way to call that is a purification offering. That's really more what the Hebrew is talking about. So the purification offering would be, um, look at chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If anyone sins unintentionally in any of the Lord's commandments about things not to be done, and does any one of them, if it is the anointed priest who sins, uh, thus, or sorry, yeah, if it's the anointed priest who sins, thus bringing guilt on the people, then he shall offer for the sin that he has committed a bull from the herd without blemish to the Lord for a sin offering. And he goes on, if it's somebody else, then there's a series of things that they offer. But the big thing is, if anyone sins unintentionally, okay, God's going to give him lots of rules about what it looks like to live in a holy way, to, to stay pure. And some of those things would seem totally strange to us, okay, but there would be rules, like you have to eat this, or you can't touch a dead animal, or you can't... Um, you know, be, you can't touch a woman if she's having certain bodily functions going on, things like, there's all kinds of weird things, and not them, not all of them are like bad things necessarily, but they make you either ritually pure or impure, and if you do anything unintentionally that makes you ritually impure, then you have to offer a sacrifice to purify yourself, okay, and so this is what these sacrifices talk about, and so it's the same thing, you would offer a sacrifice on the altar, you would wash somehow, and you would go through this thing, and that was symbolizing you taking that purity off of you, and then it was purifying you. So that because God's whole deal was not just to be in the presence of God, but to be the people of God, period, you were supposed to be a pure people. And so if you became impure, that would cut you off from fellowship with everybody else, it would cut you off from fellowship with God, and that would make you stop being the kind of pure people that God wants you to be in the midst of all of these other nations. And so you would have to go through this process of purifying yourself. And then the last one is guilt offering. And this was a little, it's a little similar to the sin or purification offering. It was also if you sinned unintentionally, but more in matters of religious practice. 
okay? And the big difference in that is not only would you offer a sacrifice to atone for your guilt, but you would actually have to offer um, a remittance or a restitution, okay? So you would have to, what that kind of is symbolizing is like if you sinned in a way that somehow profaned God's tabernacle or you took God's name in vain or you did something that was not just defiling yourself but it was kind of profaning other things, then, uh, you, then that causes damage. And so you would have to offer a sacrifice and then you would also have to offer like a one-fifth extra restitution. And so what that's kind of saying is that sin has consequences. It costs something. And you would come and you would have to make a restitution in, in paying God back kind of for that defilement that you did that thing like that, okay? Um, all of this, what this is really saying is that sin is serious. Sin is costly. Sin deserves death. In the case of that last one, sin deserves death and some, right? And so this is, this is speaking to how serious unholiness is, how serious sinfulness is. And it also speaks to this idea that sin is contagious, Impurity is contagious. If you are impure and then you touch something else that's impure, it be, or you touch something that's pure, it becomes impure. Okay? Sin spreads from one thing to another, and so you have to take sin seriously or it will work itself out through the whole community. And all of those things, those are the, the sacrifices that go on there. That's really interesting to me. So I mentioned, you know, sorry, it's in the Bible. Um, there's weird bodily functions that it talks about for men too. But it talks about women and uh, women's menstrual cycle, okay? And that that would make you impure. That doesn't say that makes you bad. God made women to work that way, okay? But that would make you ritually impure, and there would be a process of cleansing for that. Um, but, like, a man could not touch a woman while she was in that period of impurity, lest he become impure, and then he would have to clean himself as well. Well, why am I talking about this? In the New Testament, in the Gospels, there is a story that's repeated in several of the Gospels where there is a woman who has a discharge of blood that she couldn't stop. It said she had a discharge of blood for years and years and years and years. So that's a big deal in that story because that means that she was ritually impure the entire time that that discharge of blood was happening, and she couldn't stop it, so she couldn't become pure. And so remember what happens in that story? Jesus is walking through with a crowd, and this woman reaches out and she touches him. Okay? That's bad. She's impure, and if you touch something that's pure with your impurity, that thing becomes impure. But what happens when she touches Jesus? She's healed. So Jesus is the, this new kind of purity, this new kind of holiness, this new presence of God, where sin doesn't defile him, he cleans sin up. But that only really makes sense when you understand the seriousness of sin. Only then can you understand really the power of Jesus to wipe away impurity and do those things. Okay? Now, if you're paying attention, you notice that in these two, it only says unintentional sin. Okay? And you say, what about intentional sin? So you know what? Intentional sin is like a high-handed sin, where it's like, I know that this is wrong, but I'm going to do this anyway. Okay? Up to this point, there's no provision for intentional sin. Okay, so that, that's, intentional sin is, is rebellion. It is insurrection against your king, against the holy God. So there's one other um, sacrifice that really gets offered with this, and that is the one that um, deals with everything. And that is in Leviticus chapter 16, that's called the Day of Atonement. Okay, so in Levitic Leviticus 16, this was only one day a year. This was an entirely different thing. The Day of Atonement. And what the Day of Atonement really has in view is that there is no one who does good. Everyone is evil. Okay? And so this is, this is kind of the day where everything gets wiped clean. This is the day where your intentional sins get wiped clean. This is the day where all of the things that you didn't even know about get wiped clean. This is the day where God kind of fixes everything. This is the one day... Okay, where the priest, the high priest, could go into the most holy place. And so what they would do is they, they had this, this crazy kind of system where the high priest would have to offer a burnt offering, just like everybody else, okay? The high priest is, in, in, the high priest is just an Israelite too, and the priests are just Israelites. So if they wanted to come in, they had to offer burnt offerings too. 
And so the high priest offers a burnt offering, a really good burnt offering. And then what they would do is they would take two uh, sheep or goats. They would take two goats and they would cast lots over them. So they would basically flip a coin. And one of them would be um, sacrificed, okay, as an atonement, as a burnt offering. And then the other one would be what was called the scapegoat. And what they would do is they would take uh, the priest, the high priest. So remember, the high priest is like the representative. He represents the whole nation. And the high priest would lay his hands, and he would be doing the same thing. He would be transferring, but it's not just his sins, okay? But it's the sins of all of the people. When, we, when you look into the details, that even the high priest had special clothes that they were supposed to wear to di- differentiate them from everybody else. One of the things that the high priest would wear is a thing called an ephod, which is like a vest. And on the ephod, there were stones, precious stones, okay? Um, it's interesting if you read Genesis 2 and it describes the Garden of Eden, one of the things it describes is the presence of precious stones and metals. Um, but the high priest would have precious stones, and on the name of, there were 12 stones, and on the name of the stones was the name of one tribe of Israel. So the priest was literally walking around with Israel on his heart, okay? And so he was going as the stand-in, as a representative for all of Israel. He would lay his hands on the scapegoat. All of the sins would be transferred onto the scapegoat, okay? And then what they would do is there would be another guy, and it was his job to take the scapegoat and walk it out into the desert as far away from Israel as he could possibly get. And then he would let it go in the desert, and he would walk back. And so what that symbolized was the removal of all of their sin far away from Israel and then out into the desert. And what happens to a goat in the desert? It dies. It gets eaten. It gets dies of thirst. I don't know. Okay? And they wanted to make sure, like, if it came back, that would be bad. That would be their sins coming back. And so they, like, walked it out as far as they could. Okay? Um, I actually, I think uh, they, got, they got to the practice. This isn't from the Bible. But they actually got to the practice where they would eventually let the scapegoat go off a cliff so that it would like fall and die. And they had like special priests that would watch it to make sure that it was really dead and then they would signal back to the other guys because that was, but, but that was God making a provision to take away all of their sins, okay? So it's grace, but it's also, this sin is serious. I should be dead like that scapegoat, but God instead has provided a sacrifice for me to offer uh, to, to take my sins away and do that, okay? And so then the priest would offer the, the sacrifice for the other animal, and what he would do is he would come into the most holy place and with, with the blood of that sacrifice, okay, with all of Israel on his heart. So he was basically carrying the presence of Israel into the presence of God through blood, and he would sprinkle the blood all over that place. He would offer incense, he would offer prayers, and he was saying, God, please accept us Please be at peace with us. Please forgive us. Take away our sins. Purify us. Make us your people again. And, and let our relationship be maintained. Okay? Let our fellowship, your presence with us and our presence with you, let that be maintained. Just like it is today. And then God would accept the sacrifice and the priest would step out of there as fast as he could. They used to tie a rope around his foot so that he would go into the most holy place. And if for some reason he did something wrong and he died they could drag him out, okay? Because the presence of God is, is serious. But that's, that was the Day of Atonement. And then they would have peace, and it would be a big party, and everything was good. So those are the sacrificial system. That's the sacrificial system outlined in the book of Leviticus. In chapters 8 and 9, I said that those sacrifices go through 1 and 7. 8 and 9 describe uh, the ordination ceremony, which is actually a whole other separate sacrificial ceremony, the ordination ceremony of the priests. So how they could become clean and able to offer the sacrifices and do all of those things, okay? And the main idea to see in that one, like I said, is that the priests were just like everybody else. The priests needed to be purified and needed uh, to offer offerings so that they could be accepted as well. But then the bigger thing is the fact that there are priests at all says that, again, God wants a a relationship. And it has to come through mediators, but this is all grace, okay? So even though there's a system, because sin is so serious, God is willing to put a system in place that allows for mediation between him and his people. So what do we do with all this? What do we do with Christ- as Christians with the book of Leviticus? Because we don't offer sacrifices anymore. Sh- you know, there, there's not a tabernacle anymore. Are we missing something? What's going on? Why as Christians don't we do any of this stuff? Okay? 
you know Muslims still practice sacrifices? And Jews, if they could, would still offer sacrifices. You know why they can't? Because their temple was destroyed in 70 AD. And so they haven't been able to offer sacrifices since 70 AD, although some of them still do. Okay? But they can't offer sacrifices this way because they can't go in. The temple that was built in Jerusalem was essentially this same structure, only it was made out of stone instead of being made out of animal skins. Okay? But it was the exact same concept, and they would offer the exact same sacrifices. But they couldn't do that anymore since the temple was destroyed. And if they offered that sacrifice anywhere else, it would, it would be profane. But like on, I think it is on the Day of Atonement, um, some Orthodox Jews still kill a chicken. And then they give it to poor people. Because there's just that sense that blood needs to be shed for atonement to be made. I deserve to die, and God in his grace will accept the death of something else. And so they'll still kill a chicken. They're not supposed to. It's actually, I think, illegal in the United States to offer sacrifices like that, or to do something like that. But why don't we do that? Why don't we offer sacrifices? Why don't we feel that impulse that all these other people feel? You know? And actually, it's interesting. If you study even non-Abrahamic religions... Um, Hinduism, they have sacrifices. Okay, there's all kinds of this idea of blood being shed for sacrifices. What do we do? Well, this is where the book of Hebrews is so important and so cool. And if you haven't read the book of Hebrews, you need to, especially now that we just gave you a crash course in Leviticus, because Hebrews really only makes sense if you've read the book of Leviticus or you understand this sacrificial system. But look, go in the book of Hebrews. I'm just going to read you some of these things. Okay, now that we have this in our mind. So go to chapter 4. And look at verse 14. Okay, so we just talked about this idea of them having priests. Hebrews is near the back of the Bible. Um, if you go to Revelation, and then you just start going to the left, it's like six books to the left of Revelations. It's, it's right before James. It is right after... Uh, the Pauline books, so like Timothy, Titus, okay, Hebrews. We don't know who wrote Hebrews. Uh, I have a guess, but nobody knows for sure. So um, my guess is it's Apollos from the book of Acts. Uh, I could tell you that. I could tell you why later. But the book of Hebrews is interpreting um, this truth in light of Christ. <laughs> and so he's going to start by saying, look, you know... You know about this idea of the old high priest? Well, I'm going to tell you about a better high priest, and his name is Jesus. So look at chapter 4, verse 14. 14. He says, Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So he's saying, well, we'll just keep reading. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. And he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Remember we said the priests had to offer their own sacrifices. So the high priests were good mediators because they were from the people. They understood the people's weaknesses because they knew they were themselves weak. Okay, It says, because of this, he is obligated to offer, this is a human high priest, he's obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So it's saying just like Aaron didn't make himself high priest, God made him high priest. Jesus did not make himself high priest. God made him high priest. Okay. It says, verse 7, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So what he's really saying, and I'll get on this point elsewhere, is that Jesus was a high priest like us, able to come from us. So it says he, he took on flesh and blood so that he could understand our weakness. So he is the perfect mediator between God and man because he is God and man. 
And so God has made him a high priest, and he's a perfect high priest. And he's saying, Jesus, when he was alive, carried out the same functions of a high priest. That is to carry up prayers and supplications on behalf of all of the people. To carry Israel on his heart. To carry God's people on his heart as he goes into the presence of God. But did you see what he says? Um, Where is that? Verse 16 of chapter 4. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. That's a big deal. Why do we draw near to confidence? This is the throne of grace. How can we draw near to the throne of grace? Because we have a great high priest who we know we have confidence has, has made a way for us. So if you go on to chapter 7, verse 23 of the book of Hebrews. It says, The former priests, the Levitical priests, were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. So he's saying there have been thousands and thousands of Levitical priests because they could only live for so long and then they died. But Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Now listen to this. Now, the point in which we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, a perfect high priest. Not a priest that needs to clean up his own sins, okay? but a priest who is perfect and so can offer himself as a sacrifice instead. And that's really good news. That's what he's saying. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. So what he's saying is this thing, this tabernacle, was not ever really the fullness of God's presence. The fullness of God's presence is in heaven. Okay, This is just a picture. But Jesus didn't enter into this holy place. Jesus enters into the most holy place that is heaven. And he takes us into heaven with him. So Jesus mediates a much better presence than even the high priest could. Verse 3 of chapter 8 says, For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it's necessary for the priest also to have something to offer. Now if, we were, if Jesus were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for the second. Now isn't this so cool? Just because you guys know about Exodus and Leviticus, this makes a lot more sense, doesn't it? Okay. Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant. The covenant that Moses had was pretty good, but if it was uh, perfect, then there wouldn't be any need for a second one. But clearly Jesus came and he says, I'm mediating a better covenant for you. Look at chapter 9, verse 1. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness, for a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place, and behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. You guys know exactly about that, don't you? Look at Hebrews talking about this. The most holy place, verse 4, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These, these preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties, but into the second, only the high priest goes. This is totally familiar to you guys, isn't it? From the book of Leviticus. And he, but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. And by this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. But according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, 
regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But listen to this. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not a tent made with hands that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So what's that saying? All of this stuff was a picture, a shadow that was getting us ready for Jesus. All of this stuff and what it's describing, that God does want to have peace with us, that God has made a way for us, that God does offer mediators for us, all of that is saying this is just a picture. This isn't the perfect version, but the perfect version is Jesus. Jesus, who even in John chapter 1 says the word became flesh and dwelt among us in Greek, it's the word became flesh and tabernacled with us. So this was a tent that was made out of skin in whom God's presence dwelt. Jesus was a better tent made out of skin in whom the presence of God dwelt. And what did Jesus do in that tent? But he offered his own body as a sacrifice. Jesus is the better burnt offering that is offered wholly so that we can be acceptable by God. We can't be acceptable by God by our own efforts, but Jesus has come and offered his entire body as a sacrifice so that we can be acceptable to God. Jesus is the memorial offering for us. You remember what the thief on the cross said to Jesus before they were dying? Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And what does Jesus say? I tell you today you will be with me in paradise. I do remember you. I have, I have Jesus is the proof that, that God does care for us. And Jesus is the means of our dependence on God being expressed. The peace offering, Jesus is the way that we sit down and have fellowship with God. What do we do every Sunday that we take the Lord's Supper? But we celebrate a meal with one another and with God based on the peace that we have with God through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the purification offering. He takes away our sins. He took all of our sins and he died on the cross. Jesus even made and paid the extra that we owed that we could never pay back. See, that's the crazy thing is sin doesn't just deserve death, okay? Sin deserves extra. And so even if you were to pay back all that you, um, even if you were to pay God for the sins that you committed, you didn't have any extra that you could give. Okay, so if you gave your God your whole life to pay for your sins, there would still be a deficit. But Jesus, because he's God, is able to pay back all of the restitution that we owe for our sins. And so he says, I got you covered. I will offer that guilt offering for you. And Jesus is the ultimate expression of the Day of Atonement. On Jesus were all of the intentional and unintentional sins of, Je of, of Israel, of, of the people of God, laid, and Jesus died. And what he's saying is Jesus is this temple. Jesus ripped this dividing line in his own flesh. Okay, Jesus tore his own flesh so that we could have unfettered access to God through his flesh. So Jesus has removed all of those barriers. Now the Garden of Eden has been opened wide open for every person, not just priests, but all of us get to enter in through Christ into the presence of God. So he says, approach the throne of God with confidence through Christ because Christ is the fulfillment of everything that Leviticus is just a picture. Isn't that awesome? It's so cool. And the more you study Hebrews and you can understand this stuff, um, the more you study Leviticus, it all just comes into sharper vision. And you're so glad that we have a great high priest. And he's still our high priest. Okay, he is still there with us. You got a minute? Okay, chapter 9, verse 23. It says, Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. That's talking about the tabernacle. But the heavenly things themselves are with better sacrifices than these, for Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters into the holy place every year with blood not his own, for then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once and for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, 
will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any occasions for sins? But in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Look at verse 11. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, that is his body, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those that are being sanctified. When we were talking about all the different furnishings that go in the temple, never once is there a chair. Okay? The priests are working around the clock offering sacrifices. Somebody did the math and they would offer like hundreds of thousands of sacrifices a year. Jesus offers his body once and then he sits down. Okay? And so what they're saying is it's obvious that those sacrifices were not truly effective. They were only symbols because if they had been truly effective, they would have worked. But Jesus offered his body once for all. And so we don't have to offer sacrifices anymore. We do offer a sacrifice insofar as we have faith in Jesus. We offer that sacrifice. But what do we do instead? Okay, this is the last thing. Look at chapter 10, verse 19. It says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Just hear that. If you're a believer in Jesus, you are pure. And you have unfettered access to God. You are accepted by God. Now, you don't have to do anything now. You are already in Christ accepted by God. So you can stand in God's throne room and ask for whatever you want in confidence. That's a scary, if you're not a Christian, then God is not obligated to hear your prayers. Do you get that? That relationship is broken. So the prayers of non-Christians, God does not have to listen to. And oftentimes it says, in the Bible it says, I will not listen to the prayers of the wicked. That's scary, okay? But the prayers of the righteous, made righteous in Christ, God has to listen to you. God wants to listen to you. God wants that relationship. And you can come with confidence. Even if you feel like you totally screwed up today. Even if you've sinned, you fell back into that old pattern that you wish you, know, you could just be rid of, but you just can't, and you feel so impure. The truth is you're already pure in Jesus, and he only had to offer one sacrifice. And he offered that 2,000 years ago. All of your sins were future sins when Jesus offered his sacrifice. Okay? But you are pure in Christ. And so you can go to God whenever you want. So look at verse 23. It says, So let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love in good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. It's really interesting that he mentions good works. This is the last thing. Turn to chapter 13. Verse 14 says, For we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. The temple was in Jerusalem. He's saying, we don't, we don't, have a, we don't have a city anymore. We don't have a place where God's presence is. Actually, Paul says now that the presence of God is in the church. The Spirit of God dwells in the church. Okay, But we are looking forward to a city that is to come. So we look forward to heaven when even the separation that we feel from God right now will be totally removed. We'll be like the Garden of Eden, only better. Okay, The presence of God will be full and finished. That's what it says in Revelation. Behold, God is dwelling with the people again. But verse 15, it says, Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. So we don't offer these sacrifices anymore. Jesus is these sacrifices for us. What's the sacrifice that we as Christians offer now? Praise. Praise and good works. Verse 16, Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. That is the new sacrificial system. So that's why he says in chapter 10, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Okay? Because that's our sacrificial system now. We don't have to offer goats for the purification of sins. 
Instead, we get to just enjoy peace and fellowship with God and loving one another and praising God. That's the sacrificial system that we have. Okay, pretty cool. You see how it's all? So Leviticus matters, doesn't it? Because the book of Hebrews is one of the sweetest books in the whole Bible, and if you don't know Leviticus, then it doesn't make any sense. But now you do, or you know part of it. We're going to finish next week with uh, festivals and holidays and um, priests being killed for worshiping God the wrong way and kosher laws, stuff like that. It should be pretty cool. Let's pray. God, I'm praying right now to you on behalf of everyone in this room. We are all praying to you, and uh, we know that we have access to you because you sent your son, Jesus. That sin is serious, that we are an unholy people and otherwise have no right to claim any, uh, any presence with you, any uh, audience with you, but because of Jesus, we can come to you with confidence and we can ask whatever we want. And God, even though we have still sinned today, Lord, that sin does not prevent us from being in your presence. And this is just a foretaste of the presence that we will have with you forever in the new heavens and the new earth and, and the, the better temple that you make this creation into just like it was always meant to be. So God, I pray that you would, uh, God, I just praise you. You are so good. You are so wise. You are so wonderful, and your plan is so beautiful. And um, God, we love you. And we love you for sending your son for us to be our mediator and to be like us and yet to be so different from us in all the right ways. And God, we praise you for the love that you have shown to us in giving your son to die the death that we deserve to die and atone for our sins. And so, God, I pray that you give us your spirit to dwell with us and to help us love other people and that we would see that as a sacrifice, just like Paul says in Romans 12, that we would offer our bodies as a living sacrifice as we use our gifts to love other people. This is what you have done for us in Christ. Would we do that for other people for your glory until you come? And we pray this all in Jesus' name.